and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, September 17th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. And Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Nice to be here. Thank you for joining us, ladies. Let us get straight to the news. So I had truly planned a nearly COVID-free podcast this week, but alas, we had Wednesday. In the morning, CDC Chief Robert Redfield told a Senate subcommittee that a vaccine likely won't be widely available to the general public until late 2021, and that mask wearing is the most important tool we have right now to stop the spread. Just a few hours later, President Trump called a last-minute news conference to say that the CDC head was, quote, mistaken and, quote, might have misunderstood the questions. Clearly, he did not. But where does all of this mixed messaging leave us as summer ends and we head into the flu season? We're now six months into this and people still aren't getting, you know, one set of guidance to follow. Well, it's very dangerous. I was talking to a lot of people about this yesterday and People need to trust the government in order for this pandemic to end whenever we have a vaccine, if we have one. Promising a specific date or timeline, as the president has repeatedly done, and a lot of his top officials have said, White House officials, not science officials, I should add, um, but predicting an exact date when you have power and influence over the process really erodes people's trust in the process because they it looks like they are rushing out a vaccine before the election in order to help his election prospects. And in polling, the trust in a vaccine and the number of people who say they would take it if and when it comes out has gone down over the last few months as the president has repeatedly made these claims and contradicted his top science officials. He's contradicted Fauci on this before. I also think people should pay attention to promises of the number of doses, just because this could be a two-dose vaccine. And so we had the White House press secretary throwing out numbers yesterday, like 100 million doses. But if each person needs two, then that's only 50 million people. And so that could square with what Redfield said about how most people in the country won't be able to get one until later in 2021, even if maybe 50 million get it sooner. So there's a lot of like weird semantics going on and competing messages and all of it just erodes trust in the process at a very delicate time. We cover this, you know, for a living. I can't imagine how somebody, just a member of the general public who dips in and out of the news um, is to make any sense of this. Sarah, you were about to say something. I was going to say that Redfield was talking about the importance of mask wearing. And I think what um, was sort of lost in the back and forth between him and the president is Once we get a vaccine, even when the majority of the American population can be vaccinated, and if they are, we don't necessarily know that we're going to be able to give up completely some of these public health measures like mask wearing, like, you know, some degree of social distancing and so forth, because the vaccines, the target right now is for them to be 50% effective. If they're only that effective, that's going to likely mean we're going to need to continue a lot of these public health procedures for a while. 
And we also don't know, you know, a vaccine may do a couple of things. It may be a little bit like the flu shot, where sometimes it helps prevent you from getting the flu. Sometimes you might still get the flu, but it'll be a lot milder version of it and you won't have, you know, high risk. If we get that type of shot, it's likely also not going to prevent transmissions, right? Because if you still get sick, you can still transmit. So again, that's where we're still going to need to be doing mask wearing, um, so I think what Redfield was trying to say is it's not a we're not wearing masks until we get a vaccine. And I think that got lost a bit in the debate over exactly when we might have one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let us move on to some of our non-COVID uh, topics today, starting with the prescription drug beat, since we have Sarah here with us. You might remember earlier this summer when President Trump announced he was going to issue an executive order to peg Medicare drug prices to the price controlled prices in other countries, which are obviously lower. He didn't actually release that order because he said he wanted to negotiate with the drug industry first. Well, that apparently didn't go so well because this week the executive order was signed and released. Um, Sarah, Tell us what it suggests it would do and how much power does it have to actually do what he says it's going to do? So it suggests it would do two things. One is essentially tie certain drugs in Medicare Part B, the sort of physician administered drugs like chemotherapy to the lower prices of drugs paid in similarly like high income countries. And it also suggests it would do something similar in Medicare Part D, the sort of outpatient the prescription drugs seniors pick up at their, you know, local pharmacy if those drugs don't have sufficient competition and so forth. The big issue here is that, you know, an executive order simply essentially basically like this is just telling um, HHS and CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, to kind of write regulations and get this done. And that can take a lot of time. There's some, I think, thought or hope that this could be sped up because we are in a public health emergency. There's some authority for the secretary to issue sort of interim final rules that might speed up the rulemaking process a bit. There's also the possibility that um, under the Affordable Care Act, CMS was given this innovation center that lets them test certain programs. And that sometimes allows them a bit more flexibility, again, to sort of avoid a lot of public comment and delays in developing rules. The but, Innovation Center, I should add, that the Republicans very much wanted to get rid of. Right. <laughs> but have not. The Innovation Center is funny. It's whichever party I think is in control likes it and the other uh, side doesn't. So I think the big takeaway from this is that this is really a symbolic messaging from the president that, you know, reminding the public that he says he wants to lower drug prices. But the reality is he essentially has to win another term for this to go anywhere. And I question how serious his administration would be to following through on this because two years ago, CMS issued a very similar rule um, or advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, and they never followed through with that. And so if they had followed through, we might actually be at the point where we could be implementing it and seniors might actually be starting to see lower prices if it worked. So the timing of it now is, 
um, most people are seeing it as a bit more of a campaign messaging tool. Yeah, I mean, the, the drug industry obviously does not is not excited about the idea of the U.S. basically importing other countries' price controls. That's effectively what this would be, right? This has always been the argument that the drug industry has made. And obviously now the president was sort of praising these drug companies who are working on the vaccine to the skies. But the drug companies are saying if they can't charge whatever they want in the United States, they won't have enough money to develop new drugs. I mean, is, is this... And in their press release on Sunday opposing this, they said, you know, you wouldn't want to do anything that would, you know, harm our ability to fight COVID-19 and develop treatments and a vaccine, you know, and this kind of thing would harm our ability to do that. And, you know, that's definitely an issue. I mean, there's so many layers here of opposition. The other thing is, is that the other Republicans in the Senate and elsewhere are also not very excited about this. I mean, this is, you know, pretty uniformly been panned by most conservative and Republican groups because this is coming at a time when the Republican Party is basically trying to label the Democrats as socialists, but then on the other hand, trying to take advantage of prices in countries that have government controls. It's also very interesting, of course, that this kind of policy is supported by Biden and Sanders and House Democrats, etc. It's interesting politically, like you said, because on the right, they're blasting it as, you know, importing socialist price controls. On the left, they're going to say it doesn't go far enough, doesn't do enough. You know, we should have Medicare negotiating drug prices, you know, all these more aggressive measures. And so who is this uh, announcement supposed to appeal to, especially if people don't feel the effects soon enough before the election? I also think that it was a ding against Trump wanting to have this reputation as a great deal maker that he couldn't even get a meeting with the drug companies. <laughs> they refused to come to the White House to to meet with him and negotiate on this and are now blasting the rule that's come out. Uh, although, you know, fighting with drug companies could be good politics. It certainly has been for for others. So we'll have to see. Although, you know, I, I have to wonder, sort of watching the president, you know, basically say things in the in the ABC town hall the other night. I mean, he just says things that aren't true, that haven't happened. Um, but it's it sort of if you, you know, if you say it enough, people start to believe it. And I, you know, he loves to tout how much he's done about drug prices. And it's true. They have, in theory, you know, issued a lot of things about drug prices. He signed a lot of executive orders. Have any of them done anything to lower any prices of drugs yet? I'm I can't think of one. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he can repeat this all he wants, but if people are not feeling the benefits personally, there's going to be some cognitive dissonance there. The biggest claim the president maybe has on drug prices is his, his keeping the attention on it, his sort of podium policy has sort of scared companies a little bit, I think, into sort of moderating their behavior, and he can maybe take a bit of credit for that. I also think he probably does get the benefit. I think a lot of the Kaiser Family Foundation polls on this topic have found people really care about drug pricing, but most of them actually say they are fine affording their drugs. So if you don't have a problem affording your drugs, you might not realize that the policies haven't made them any cheaper. So if you hear the president saying, oh, we've done things on it, you might think, oh, great, he's helped those other people. Um, and he gets a little bit of a benefit from that potentially, because again, most people actually say they're not having a huge issue, but they're worried just about the issue in general. Yeah, I think sometimes when you go to pick up your drug, even if you have insurance, it'll say, you know, you're, you're said this drug costs seven hundred and eighty-two dollars, but you're paying thirty. Right. <laughs> that that seems. And are people really paying that much attention to it? Because all they really care about is the thirty. Right. 
which they also think is too much. All right. Well, if that's not nerdy enough, um, also this week, the Trump administration withdrew something called the Medicaid Fiscal Accountability Regulation, which was the latest in a multi-decade effort by the federal government to prevent state governments from gaming the Medicaid system, because Medicaid, of course, is an expense that's shared between the federal and state government. Uh, I would add, I spent a considerable amount of my reporting time in the early 1990s covering a very similar fight. The bottom line is that states have every incentive to to maximize the amount of federal funding for Medicaid, and over the years have come up with some very creative ways to do that. On the other hand, state officials and health providers said that the timing of this particular effort right in the middle of the pandemic literally could not have been worse. I suspect that's why the administration backed off on this. Um, Could this have actually become a campaign issue if it had led states? I mean, states are worried about being able to pay their their portion of Medicaid anyway. Um, Or is this just way too far in the weeds for anybody, including possibly some of our podcast listeners? Well, also with the economic downturn right now, states are just adding people to Medicaid. Their Medicaid roles are getting higher. Their states are outside of Medicaid, I think, feeling economic impacts themselves um, separately of COVID and the economic downturn. So politically to hurt states' budgets for Medicaid now, just, I mean, it never was a good, perhaps political move, but um, certainly now I think the um, impact of it would be felt much more strongly. I would point out that this is that it, it was it's probably a fiscally responsible move. Um, you know, who knows what what the admin, you know, all the, the details, how these details would have played out. But this sort of tug of war between the, the federal government trying to, you know, make sure that the states are using their own money rather than sort of collecting money in creative ways to, to do their Medicaid matches. A, as I mentioned, a, you know, a 30 year argument between the federal government and the states. Yeah, right. I just don't think it's good timing at a time when states are asking for more money. Yeah to say, yeah, this is the time we're going to actually make you give up how you've been funding your portion of Medicaid. All right. Well, I know we're all about policy here, but I feel like we need to spend at least a little time on the scandal beat this week because it feels like the Department of Health and Human Services is just one giant scandal. And, And Alice, thank you to Politico for breaking the story on most of these. Let's start with the saga of Michael Caputo, the White House installed Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at HHS, who is now on medical leave until just after the election. There are a bunch of pieces to this. So let's start at the beginning with Caputo allegedly trying to interfere with the MMWR. That's the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the weekly scientific report from the Centers for Disease Control. Apparently, Caputo, who is not a doctor, nor does he have any scientific expertise, tried to question and force changes to the MMWR to the extent that its findings disagreed with the president's contentions that the pandemic was waning. Now, there is always tension between political appointees and career government officials, particularly scientists and doctors. But this goes way beyond anything I've ever seen. I mean, have any of you in in all of your years seen sort of this level of of political appointees trying to, to change the substance of what career scientists are working on? I heard a lot of alarm from the medical community on this. They were saying, you know, those MMWR reports are just the gold standard, the the beacon for the nation and the world of science and medicine, and to, to not be able to trust the content or assurance that it has been free from political interference is really troubling. Caputo did leave this week. He'll be out through the election. We don't know if he's going to come back after that or not at this point. Um, But I think that on top of all of these other instances recently of political interference 
at HHS has really uh, sowed a lot of distrust. Yeah. So after the whole MMWR story blew up over the weekend, Caputo did a Facebook Live for his thousands of followers, at which he alleged, among other things, that there was a group of scientists at the CDC who were trying not to solve the pandemic in order to see Joe Biden elected. that then then it all just sort of got a little bit crazy um he he did eventually apologize uh and as we mentioned he's now taken medical leave the canadian doctor who he'd hired to be his uh his aide de camp uh, is uh, is leaving the department according to the statement that came out from hhs i mean how dysfunctional is hhs at this point or is it just that we're starting to see what's probably been going on for months i think it has got to a point where these people are exiting because it's just gotten so over the top, but it has been going on under the surface for a while. I just think that this is a really sensitive time and we haven't even talked about SEMA yet. Which um. is next. I'm so glad you mentioned that. So, yeah, as I, so yet Lafayre Caputo was only one of a list of scandals over at HHS in the past week. Before all of that broke, we learned more about Seema Verma, who runs the Medicare and Medicaid programs, and her use of taxpayer dollars to apparently burnish her own credentials. Again, not entirely unheard of, but pretty extreme in this instance, right? Alice, you, you guys mean, broke this story. We're, we're getting so numb to this. And, you know, a lot of people have pointed out at this point, what we've learned about uh, SEMA's spending on these private contractors goes way beyond the amount that Tom Price, former HHS secretary, spent on private flights, which led to his ouster. So, you know, the lesson seems to be, you know, just just whether it just hang on and don't resign and the public will move on to the next scandal, which is pretty troubling <laughs> at a time when, you know, we're trying to hold our government officials accountable and especially for how taxpayer money is spent. So Capitol Hill, the House committees have been doing oversight on this and and came out with these new documents this week. What I thought was interesting, and maybe this speaks even more to how numb we're getting to spending issues in the administration, to put it mildly, is I saw a lot more blowback related to the journalist who hosted the fancy party for Seema Verma rather than Seema Verma herself. So I thought that was really interesting. One of the items on the list that Seema's private contractors did to promote her image personally was they helped set up this special girls' night in at a top USA Today journalist's home. And that journalist is set to moderate the vice presidential debate coming up. And there's just a lot of questions about whether that is ethical. (laughs) I mean, we should point out that the journalist in question, Susan Page, whose name has been made very public, spent her own money to host the party. Right. The the, 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 the the taxpayer money money Mm -hmm. went right, went to the contractor who helped arrange the party. And Susan Page said she had no idea that that's what was happening. Right. But but hosting, you know, a girl's night in for a cabinet member at all is potentially problematic. So, yeah, I think even besides the spending, just this window into the Washington scene, it's very this town. Yes, very, very the cocktail party circuit. <laughs> So, all right, well, not to be left out of the discord at CMS and CDC, we also learned this week that HHS Secretary Alex Azar personally overruled the FDA to regulate some lab tests uh, to detect COVID. Again, 
Secretary has the authority to overrule the FDA commissioner. It happened in the Obama administration when the FDA wanted to approve the uh, over-the-counter sales of Plan B the morning after pill, and uh, Obama and Secretary of HHS uh, overruled them. Um, but it doesn't happen very often. Um, this one at least seemed to be kind of a legit policy difference. Yes, Sarah? You know, I, I this is a complicated situation. I sort of see it both ways. I think there was a feeling with COVID and the um, diagnostic tests that FDA was sort of clearing and approving that they weren't moving fast enough. We didn't have enough tests. And perhaps the regulatory oversight was a barrier to that. Of course, we know from very early on in this crisis, when FDA did exercise some flexibility, they ended up pulling back because the tests weren't very accurate. (laughs) So you sort of see the role of it. This issue of who is in charge of overseeing these tests is actually one that has persisted in a bit of fight between FDA, HHS, and Congress well before COVID-19. Um, FDA, actually, even before Trump under the Obama administration, was sort of trying to assert more authority over these diagnostic tests and regulate them more closely. Um, CMS has historically had some much more lax oversight of them. And What happened with COVID is that under a public health emergency, FDA actually gets more authority than it typically has. So HHS, when it sort of pulled the cover off of FDA, not only are they impacting what's happening with COVID-19, I think they're impacting what could happen in the future. One argument I think people have here is that we probably do need more oversight of these tests. The issue may actually be, though, FDA or the government needs more resources to do that oversight and to do it faster because you don't want the government oversight to necessarily slow things down in a public health emergency. But I think as COVID-19 has shown us, there's certainly a need for somebody to independently verify corporations' tests and make sure they're, you know, if they're saying they can diagnose COVID, they're doing it accurately or they're testing for antibodies. So it's definitely a complicated um, situation where you can kind of see where HHS is coming from and FDA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think the one thing we've made clear is that a lot of these fights do predate not just COVID, but some of them predate the Trump administration, too. There is we're just COVID is sort of giving us a new window into some of these. All right. Well, one more scandal. This one uh, belongs to the Department of Homeland Security, not HHS, but it is still health related. Uh, there's now a whistleblower complaint from a nurse who worked at an ICE facility uh, where uh, immigrants were being detained, saying women who'd been sent to an OBGYN for various reasons all seem to end up getting hysterectomies to the extent that the detainees themselves began to refer to the doctor as the, quote, uterus collector. Alice, this sort of harkens back to an earlier ICE scandal, sort of an ICE slash HHS scandal that you covered, right? There there seems to be this intense interest in women's reproductive uh, tracts. Right. And that one was regarding undocumented minors in the care of HHS who were pregnant and who wanted abortions and uh, a very anti-abortion former official now, now former, uh, at the time, Scott Lloyd, was... Someone who actually did get pushed out. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, there there has been there has been a lot of turnover, but yes, no, he got very involved. He was, um, you know, tracking uh, menstrual cycles <laughs> um, of the detainees. There was just a, a lot there, and so you know, this has generated a lot of outrage. Obviously, it ties back into a long history of forced serializations of communities of color is is very, very troubling. And, 
This is an administration that, you know, purports to value uh, life and be anti-abortion. And here this is a mark on that front. I, I noticed that in the in the department's response to the whistleblower, they said that, you know, that none of these women have been used for medical experimentation, but they didn't say that none of these women were basically sterilized for, you know, eugenics reasons. I was I was just surprised at sort of the, the wording of their of the pushback. But this this one obviously has a ways to play out. All right. Well, finally, this week, we got the annual numbers from the Census Bureau about poverty and income and health insurance. Mind you, these are the numbers from 2019. So before the pandemic, and they showed that while income was up, poverty was down, but health insurance was also down. About a million more people were added to the ranks of the uninsured. In fact, the only state where the percentage of insured went up was Virginia, which finally expanded Medicaid starting in early 2019. This isn't usually how this goes. Insurance coverage tends to go up when income goes up and poverty goes down. Tammy, you were on this call. What did you make of this? Yeah, I mean, it's very telling. In fact, Virginia, as you say, was the only state where it went up and it was because of Medicaid. I mean, where the uninsured rate, I guess, went down, where the number of insured went up. And that was because of Medicaid, not because of a good economy. And at the same time, you had 19 states where the uninsured rate climbed. So, you know, that's kind of surprising at a time when median income hit a record high and poverty was at a you know a record low, as you say. Although they come from two different surveys, so you can't necessarily there's some issues there with some of the numbers from the on the poverty and uh and median income. But yeah, I mean I think one thing that's also notable is the fact that generally Medicaid coverage decreased, which you would say, okay, you know, that's good because, you know, poverty is down and more people are are working and making money. I mean, you know, the number of people working went up by 2.2 million full-time year round. But at the same time, you have employer-provided coverage only creeped up by from 55.2 to 55.4, which is, you know, which is, yes, an increase, but not a very notable increase at a time when unemployment was at such a record low. So I think... So generally, people who were losing their Medicaid were not losing right. it because they were gaining employer health insurance. Right. And that's exactly when I actually spoke last year, because the same thing happened last year when I spoke to Larry Levitt at Kaiser. That's one thing that he pointed out to say that the people are losing Medicaid and they're actually are working, but they're not working at jobs which provide coverage or which provide coverage that people can afford. So, and, and you know, this is to some extent what we saw before the Affordable Care Act, which is what the Affordable Care Act was meant to address, because there were plenty of people who were working in the past before the ACA and they still didn't have coverage. I, and I don't think I want to leave this without uh, mentioning that for the first time, and I've been listening to this call since the late 1980s, the Census Bureau, obviously, someone told them, you know, not to say bad news. So rather than saying the number of uninsured went up, um, the, the, the lead finding in this report was 92% of Americans have health insurance, which of course is, you know, even when, when insurance is really bad, we, I think that the, the lowest it ever got was like 86% of Americans have health insurance. The idea that they sort of felt the need or were told to feel the need to 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 lead with what looked to be good news was striking to me. I mean, this is normally an extraordinarily straight ahead report. These are the numbers and this is what it is. And yet there was this sort of very sort of jarring trying to put a happy face on not great news. Did you feel that too? I mean, they didn't say as, I mean, I'm not sure what the the reasoning behind it was, but you know, I mean, I think they were a little clearer in saying what the uh, 
records were in median and income and, and poverty. But also, of course, the health insurance coverage is doubly confusing because there are two reports that they're talking about. So, you know, it's just it's a it's a messier number right now. And they did point out the CPS number, the current population survey. They went into the field to collect this right as things were shutting down in the middle of March. I mean, to be fair to the Census Bureau, it was hard for them to actually come up with these numbers. But I was just surprised that the numbers were presented so as to not sort of lead with bad news. And yet every year, I mean, they have led with whatever the news is. It's either, you know, the uninsured number goes up, the uninsured number goes down. Um, They've always just said that. And this year, I felt like there was somebody who was tinkering. And it wasn't just really in the press release. It was you know, it's in the report too. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Tammy, why don't you go first this week? Well, it's actually playing off what we were just speaking about. While the share of Medicaid enrollment was down last year, it is certainly not going to be down this year during the pandemic as so many people are losing their jobs. So we are expecting next year to see that employer-sponsored coverage is down and Medicaid is up. And Amy Goldstein at The Washington Post uh, wrote a really thorough story called Medicaid Rolls Swell Amid the Pandemic's Historic Job Losses, Straining State Budgets. She looked very specifically at Nevada, uh, which saw, by the most recent count, it said that the number of Nevadans on Medicaid has climbed from fewer than 644,000 in February to about 731,000 through August, and that it's not the only state that's had these increases. And this has, as we were also talking about earlier, with states are already having to squeeze money out of the Medicaid budget in order to be able to balance their state budgets, which they have to do, unlike the federal government. And so in Medicaid, they're paying providers less because they don't have a lot of options. They can't kick people off of Medicaid, even if they wanted to. And so one of the things they can do is lower the provider rates. And then, of course, one of the things that she did is speak to the providers about what that means for them. Then, you know, there's a cascading effect because then fewer providers may take Medicaid and you know, then it's harder for people to get care, even though they have the coverage. So it's, it's a big issue. It is. Sarah. I was looking at a story from Kaiser Health News' Christina Dewitt about hospitals and nursing homes not following policies to keep COVID patients separate from other patients. And one of those stories where you're thinking, you know, we're six months into the pandemic and um, facilities still sort of can't follow the best practices that have been recommended. So, you know, hospitals and nursing homes and so forth are supposed to keep COVID patients and COVID units separate so that for both the protection of patients and staff to ensure the disease doesn't spread anymore. Um, And her investigation found this isn't happening in many places. And the consequences are that in some cases, staff members are getting sick and dying. The other thing that's interesting about her story is, you know, while there are some procedures in place for federal and state fines and so forth for facilities not practicing these policies, in most cases, it looks like those fines or um, punishments are sort of slaps on the wrist that isn't doesn't seem like it's enough to, you know, encourage better behavior. The other thing that kind of really shocked me about this story, I believe there was, it was a nurse, I believe, at one of the facilities that kind of said she felt safer working in a COVID unit than in a non-COVID unit, because at least in the COVID unit, 
you know, you're given the proper PPE, you know what you're dealing with. So you know, you know, how to kind of take care of yourself and the patients and protect everybody from disease transmission versus if you're working in sort of another part of the hospital and you think, you know, you're not dealing with infectious diseases, you may not get that equipment because there has been such um, shortages of PPE. Um, so it's really just sending, and of course, some of this, you know, you have to understand that it can be hard for facilities. You know, if a patient comes in and you have to give them a test, it can take a certain amount of time to find out if they're COVID positive or negative. Sometimes the tests aren't perfect, but again, it certainly shows that we need to fully follow through on all the procedures that have been in place if we're going to get a hold of the this pandemic. Indeed. Alice. So I grabbed a piece from last week uh, by my colleagues, uh, Helena Botmiller-Evich, Jimena Bustillo, and Liz Crampton, um, focusing on how farm workers across the U.S. have really borne the brunt of the pandemic and the counties with a lot of agricultural workers in many states have the highest case counts um, per capita. And just so many factors colliding here to really put farm workers at danger. Many of them are undocumented and uninsured. They're declared essential. They have to work. They live in crowded housing in these camps. There isn't a lot of testing. The Labor Department declined to make the CDC's guidance on safety for farm workers into enforceable rulemaking policy. And only eight states have mandated uh, coronavirus protections for their farm workers. All the rest have not. And so all of this has meant farm workers getting sick and dying at really disproportionate rates. And obviously it impacts our food system, but it's taking a real human toll that we should pay attention to. Indeed. Uh, I also have a COVID story. Mine is from my KHN colleagues, Roshana Prada and Lauren Weber and Hannah Recht. And it ran in USA Today under the headline, Many States Keep Patchy Data or Don't Release Results from Antigen COVID Tests, review shows. And it is a very scary story about how these rapid but less accurate COVID tests have another problem. Their results don't get reported to public health authorities in nearly half the states. So we're not getting the full picture of who actually has COVID and who doesn't. It's sort of a bigger version of the story that Sarah was just talking about. And I'll read just one paragraph from the story. Relying on patchy data from COVID-19 testing carries enormous consequences as officials decide whether to reopen schools and businesses, go back to normal too quickly and risk an even greater outbreak of disease, keep people at home too long and risk an even greater economic crisis. So rapid tests are great and necessary to help us get a handle on the pandemic, but we really, really need to know the results of them, and we're just not getting them in too many places. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay, even when we're all in different places, and who brought me this spiffy new microphone, so I hope I sound better still. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Robner. Sarah? I'm at Sarah Carlin. Alice? At Alice Olstein. Tammy? At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.